Well, if you have your Bibles or an app, turn with me to Genesis 29. We'll be in verses 1 through 30. Genesis 29, verses 1 through 30. And as you, as you turn there, uh, I want you to think of this question. Has a promise made to you ever been fulfilled in a way you didn't anticipate? Has a promise that's been made to you been fulfilled in a way that you did not anticipate? So we're in Genesis 29, and I'm going to be reading 1 through 30. So the text reads this way. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. And as he looked, he saw a well in the field. And behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it. For out of that well, the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large. And when all the flocks were gathered there, the sheep or the shepherds would roll the stone away from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, my brothers, where do you come from? And they said, we are from Haran. And he said to them, do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? They said, we know him. He said to them, is it well with him? And they said, it is well. And see, Rachel, his daughter is coming with the sheep. And he said, behold, it is still high, high day. It is not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go pasture them. But they said, we cannot, we cannot until the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled away from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her, with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now, as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. And as soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things. And Laban said to him, surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. Then Laban said to Jacob, because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now, Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah. The name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel. And he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife so that I might go into her for my time is complete. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and, and made a feast. But in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? Did I not serve you with did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, It is not 
done, so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other, also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter, Rachel, to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant, Bilhah, to his daughter, Rachel, to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah, and, he, and served Laban for another seven years. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray before we dive in. Uh, Father, we ask that you would make our hearts soft to receive your truth, that you would give us eyes to see your ways and ears to hear your truth, that when your truth is hard, would you soften our hearts? Would we be good ground? Would we be good ground so that we might stand to bear fruit? And we ask this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. So a promise, a promise from Genesis 28, 14, and 15 forms the backdrop of this upcoming narrative that we just read, Jacob's story. God's promise is this, behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. And this propels Jacob on his journey eastward. He eventually finds himself in an unforeseen location, encountering an unconventional circumstance, and becoming wedded to two brides. Will God keep him wherever he goes? An unconventional circumstance, an unexpected location, two brides. Will God keep him wherever he goes? And here's the crux for us, even as we think about this text is what we anticipate from God may not align with his actions. What we anticipate from God may not align with his actions. And in our eastward journeys, God employs unexpected, unconventional ways to fulfill his promise and bring bring about change in us. God uses unconventional ways and unexpected places to bring about change in us. So there are things in the life of Jacob and in our own lives that God providentially works out through the eastward journey of life, even when we can't see it or make sense of it. And so I've titled this sermon, The Father's Wedding Promise or Wedded Promise. So it's easy though, when we can't make sense of what God's promise is or how it's going to be fulfilled, that we would maybe quit, maybe give up, maybe throw away what God has actually promised for us at all. Things when they're hard, circumstances when they don't turn out the way that we want, when our life as we journey alongside of Jesus proved to be something completely different than what it was when we actually gave ourselves to Christ. When those things happen, What we anticipate and what God's actions are sometimes don't line up. And it's easy for us to give up. But the Christian story tells us that we were created for a journey with God that did not have hindrance and it wasn't meant to be confusing. We were created to fully enjoy God without confusion, without hindrance. It wasn't meant to be that way. But the reality is, is we lost that. Jacob's lost that. 
So the narrative of Jacob in Genesis 29, 1 through 30 serves as a mere pro of what God is going to be doing in the life of Jacob. And I'm going to say to you that what is happening to you right now is just one snippet of what God is actually going to do in your life, in my life. A process of God's restoration that involves utilizing unforeseen, unexpected, unconventional aspects of this life to bring about restoration both in ourselves and in the world. And this is what the text is drawing us to see. And this is my big idea for us today. Is God's promise is wedded to his people. We can trust his provision. More, even more built out, God's promise is wedded to his people despite their past, present, or future problems. We can trust his provision. So as we approach this text together, like me, as I was studying, and many of you might be wondering, what does it look like to trust God's provision when problems arise? What does it look like to trust God's provision when problems arise? And that leads us in to the first scene. And what I want to say is we need to recognize God's leading in, unexpected, in the unexpected. We need to recognize God's leaning, leading in the unexpected. So we see two unexpected things here. We see an unexpected place and we see unexpected people. First, let's talk about an unexpected place as we look at verses 1 through 14. So we see an eastward journey. And this, I want to say to you, in the Jacob story is a story of exile. Jacob has been exiled from his family. He's moving east. He's looking for something. And as Israel listened to this story, they would have connected the dots to their very own journey of exile out of Egypt in the wilderness, headed to the promised land. So throughout, throughout our study of Genesis, we notice that the eastward movement signifies exile and a yearning to return. It's a movement away and a yearning to return back to something. Jacob too ventures east in search of what he requires to come back home. He, searches, he goes east to search for what he requires to come back home. And the biblical theme, the journey in exile is where God's grace is most readily available, but hardest to grasp. God's grace is most readily available to us in the exile, but it's hardest to grasp. Why? Because in the journey, God often uses places in exile to prune his people. In the journey, God often uses places of exile to prune his people. It is in this journey that the pruning of God's people will drive them deeper in to the provided provision that God has for them, his provided presence, the pursuit of his promise and what he will fulfill through them. The second thing that we come across in these first few verses is a well. Jacob stumbles upon a well. While traveling east, he comes to this unexpected well. And the reason why we can say it was unexpected is because the narrator makes it seem so. It wasn't that Jacob was just wandering and he knew exactly this well and this place is gonna get me to Haran. He just knew that he was supposed to head eastward to, his, to get to Laban's house. And he stumbles upon a well surrounded by flocks of sheep in need of water. And we understand this, that it is an unexpected well and something he didn't expect by the question he asks the shepherds. Brothers, where do you come from? 
He has no idea where he's at, but he's ran across some people and he's wondering, where do you come from? It's only upon the answer of the shepherds a few verses later that we see God's provision for Jacob. It's only in the answer of the shepherds that we see God's provision for Jacob. He's reached Haran. This encounter at the well echoes other well encounters for the original audience. And it should, if we are good Bible readers and we're paying attention to Genesis and even thinking about Exodus, it, it should provoke in something for us. In Genesis 24, Jacob would have known a familiar story, a story where his grandfather, Abraham, sent his servant to a well to have his camels watered, to interact in a place where he would meet Laban, Rebekah's brother. And it also echoes Moses, our author here, the one who's writing this. In Exodus 2, Moses, out of Egypt, comes to a well where they're watering sheep, and that's where Moses meets his wife. So you almost think, oh, geez, I should go to a well today to meet a wife. That's God's leading. <laughs> no, this is God's promise in action in the story of Jacob. The well just happens to be a place, a marker of remembrance to draw us into God's provision. So Jacob would have known this story of the servant coming to the well to find his mother, Rebekah. And Jacob was sent by his father, Isaac, to find a wife in Haran with Laban where Jacob finds himself now. This is God's provision and God's leading in an unexpected place, an eastward place at a well. And this marks the recognition of God's leading for Jacob. The other thing I want us to notice is the narrator says something about a stone, a large stone on the well, an unexpected place eastward with a huge stone on the well. And as we go through the Jacob story, I want you to pay attention to this, to the reality of a stone, because it matters in unexpected places for Jacob, and it marks something in his life. The significance of stones play a crucial role. In Genesis 28, we witness Jacob resting his head on a stone. God reaffirmed his promise to him while he was resting his head on a stone. And as we proceed you will find that Jacob makes another pile of stones later with Laban. There's something here. There's something for us to pay attention to. God's leading in an unexpected place leads Jacob to a well and an engagement with a stone. But not only do we see God's provision in leading Jacob to an unexpected place, we also see it leading him to an unexpected people. Now, Jacob, I'm sure as he was traveling and he came across this well, he wasn't expecting just to run into shepherds but God's provision and his leading led him to these shepherds. And these shepherds connected Jacob to the people he needed. These shepherds connected Jacob to the people he needed. Jacob says to them, do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? It is well, the shepherds say, and see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. These shepherds that Jacob encounters lead him to the people that he needed, an unexpected counter, encounter with the people, an awareness that Jacob probably didn't have, but God knew he needed. He needed to encounter these shepherds at this well 
to meet his family. These shepherds took little interest in Jacob, which you can tell by reading the text. They were kind of annoyed in a way, pushing him along, being short in their answers to him. But God's provision for Jacob was shown through their short answers to him. They were to the point. It is, we do know Laban. It is well with him. And then why don't you ask his daughter? Here she comes. You're in the right spot, Jacob. We know Laban. You can ask his daughter. What a provision of God's leading that Jacob would wander upon these shepherds who would know Laban and who would show him his daughter. Then we also see the interaction with Rachel, which the interaction with Rachel connects Jacob to family. So there's two possible things at play here that I know that you notice is happening with Rachel and Jacob. God leads Jacob to his kin and God leads Jacob to his bride. First, he leads him to his kin. It isn't till later that God leads him to his bride. He leads him to his kin. I can't confirm the exact feelings if they're romantic or if they're just overjoyed because he finally arrived in Haran and found somebody who knows Laban. And he's now seeing what his mother had told him and his father had told him to do to go to find a wife. Maybe so. Maybe Jacob in verse 17, when it describes Rachel, he's got the Bruno Mars vibes as he considers it. Maybe he's thinking, when I see your face, there's not a thing that I would change because girl, you are amazing just the way you are. Maybe that's it. But the narrator doesn't give that to us. Just because he kisses her and he cries aloud does not mean that he's just romantically throwing himself at her. There could be just an overjoy that he has found his family. Rachel has led him to his family. And there could be an undertone there because the narrator leads us to him loving her more that he wanted her, that he wanted to be married to her. So at the very least, God's provision for Jacob is shown through his encounter with Rachel. And then you see that the narrator takes us to Rachel immediately running away to get Laban. And what happens with Laban? Laban comes running and he kisses him and he embraces him. They're kin. He's excited another guy from Abraham, who's his dad, Jacob's dad is Isaac. I'm getting it messed up. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob's dad is Isaac, which therefore means that Abraham, that wealthy guy that I remember, who his servant in 24 sent gold and silver and all of these things. I'm excited that you're here because what comes along with you maybe means some money. But what we know from Genesis 28 is that Jacob came with nothing, just himself. The text says he told him all these things, presumably saying that he told him everything that had come before, all that's happened to him. But what does Laban say to him? Surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him. Jacob stayed with him a month. Can you see here the spectacular fulfillment of God's provision for Jacob? He brought him into a home where his wife, his future wife would be in a place where he was just homeless. Now he has a home. Here is God's promise on full display. He no longer 
has to have a stone for a pillow. God is with him. God is providing for him. God is moving his story along in unexpected ways. And as I was thinking about this, the right place and the right time came to mind. And a story about Anne Parrish, an American novelist. This story about Anne, she was browsing all the way across the, across the world in Paris, a bookstore. And the story goes like this. She wrote a bunch of novels in the early 1920s, 30s. Try to check some of them out. I've never read them, but I hear they're great. So she ran across one of her childhood favorite books, Jack Frost and Other Stories. And as I was reading the New Yorker article, it described this back and forth with Anne and her husband about this very book. She was describing to him all of these things from her childhood that she had read in this book, the, the ear markers, the writings, the different things that were in this very book. Her husband was like, oh, that's great. You found a book that you love from your childhood in a Paris bookstore halfway across the world. But she's saying, no, there's something about this. And as her husband is flipping through the pages, looking at these earmarked places, he flips to the open flap. And to his astonishment, he passes the book back to Anne. And what does it say on the inside of the flap? It says, Anne Parrish, 209 North Weber Street, Colorado Springs. She found her book in Paris, her book from when she was a girl in Paris. God's provision for Jacob led him to a place where Jacob had found his old copy, his book, his family, his people, his place. In this unexpected location, it led him to unexpected people ending with a surely you are my flesh and my bone. Is this divine providence or is it happens chance? That's the question for us. Divine providence or happens chance? We are privy to the entire story. We know just by reading it, oh, this was God doing something from Jacob. But Jacob doesn't know that. He has to trust God's provision. He has to trust God's promise. What is God doing here? He is leading He's leading Jacob. The promise is still attached to Jacob, not because of anything Jacob has done, but because of God. It is sheer grace. Jacob is a bargainer, but God isn't interested in bargaining. He's interested in caring for those to whom he has bound himself to. He's not interested in bargaining. Many of us right now need to take stock of our own stories. If we find ourselves bound to Jesus, is your life just happenstance or is it divine provision? Everything that you're going to, the unexpected places, the unexpected people, is it leading you to where Jesus has promised you are going and where he is leading? The unexpected leading of God is one way God provides, but this story doesn't leave us with God's provision in unexpected places only. Trusting in God's provision also looks like, and this is scene number two, embracing God's unconventional methods. And what I mean by unconventional is God's methods and ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. 
So oftentimes when we approach a space and a place in our life, we want God to do things in the way that we would want them to be done. So one way I want us to think about this is Hebrews chapter 12. This is going to help us see what's happening in this particular section of the narrative. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 10 reads this way, for they, and he speaks of fathers, for they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best for them. But he, God, disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. God disciplines us for his good that we may share his holiness. Not just for any old reason, but so that we might share in holiness. Holiness isn't something that is stringy and uptight and dull. Holiness is beautiful. It's creating you set apart, making you into something. And so what I wanna see here is, God, is we need to embrace with Jacob God's unconventional methods. And two ways that I want us to look in this particular pericope about God's unconventional methods. First, we see, is Jacob a kinsman? Or is he a servant? Is he family or is he a slave? So multiple mentions of serving happen in verses 14 through 30. It's quite frankly a huge theme within the rest of even the Jacob narrative. It's how is Jacob going to serve? The narrator wants us to see that serving is a means of grace to begin transforming Jacob. He wants him to serve. Yes, the way, the way seems so backwards that Jacob would come to his kin and they would just be like, hey, now you're going to be my servant. What way, how do you wanna get paid for your time with me? Why would Laban do that? It seems so unconventional. Even with the reality that we know and we see that Laban is deceptive even in the way that he is taking care of Jacob. But God's promise is permanent on Jacob. It is permanent he who began a good work in Jacob will be sure to bring it to completion despite Jacob's present realities, despite the fact that he comes to Laban with nothing. He has to serve him just to get his wife. And one thing that is, that is happening here is that Jacob is actually giving a lot for what is called a bride price. He's giving a lot to marry, his, to marry Laban's daughter, Rachel three times, four times more than what the normal bride price is. Seven years he serves when he could have served two to three years for her. You see, what's happening here is God is beginning by his grace through his promise to transform Jacob. He's bringing him back to the land that a humble servant, as we think about this just being the beginning of his story, the end of his story is that Jacob comes back to the land and he's a different man. And this plays a part in that rather than just being a self-sufficient deceiver. I could say here that Jacob has met his match, but that's not exactly all that's happening. It's about what God is doing to Jacob, through Jacob, in Jacob, to make him who he has promised him to be. God's promise is wedded to his people and we can trust his provision even if it doesn't make sense, even if it's an unexpected method. There's another reality at play here. Do you reap what you sow? Jacob deceived his brother Esau. Laban is now deceiving Jacob. Is this how God works? Is this how God's economy is? Whatever I do, 
that's negative, that's wrong, that's hurtful, am I going to reap that? Well, yes, but, that, but is God wrong? Is God bad? Is God awful in doing that to us? Or is he trying, like I said, to pull something out of us, to uproot something in us? Jacob has been deceived by Laban, but there's something that's happening to Jacob if Jacob just stops for a second to think about it. It's not just that Laban is deceiving him and abusing him. It's that God is using Laban to uproot something in Jacob, to remove something in his heart. And we can see the pattern from the previous story of Jacob's life. The younger over the older, we don't do that here. The older daughter goes before the younger. We can see drunkenness, darkness, veiled. Isaac's sight was going. Jacob deceived his father who could barely see. Jacob in drunkenness and darkness and in the veiledness of his bride coming to him was deceived. And then what reigns even more true is Jacob saying to Laban, why have you deceived me? And you can imagine at this point, the light bulbs going off in Jacob's mind. Oh, that's in me. That's in me. What he has done is in me. So I'm a, you wouldn't know this um, because of how frail and fragile I walk, but I was once a basketball player. I once played a sport. And I had a, I had a weakness that my coaches used to exploit on purpose. And I had two ways to receiving their exploitation of that weakness. I could receive it with more defensiveness and I could receive it with a sort of, you don't know what's going on with me. I know what's best. I know what's right. I can train myself. I can teach myself. Or I could receive it with humility. And that weakness was my left hand. I'm a dominantly right-handed player. So what my coaches suggested and what they did was to tie my hand behind my back, my right hand. So I had to use my left hand with everything, shooting left-handed, dribbling left-handed, all drills, everything left-handed. I looked ridiculous, quite frankly. Think about walking into a gym and just seeing somebody with something tied behind their back trying to do everything with their unnatural hand, with their weakness. I looked like a fool. And in turn, this particular discipline of my very weakness was made for me and exposed for me so that I might be a more complete basketball player at the end of the day. So that down the road, my left hand and my right hand functioned at strength, fully, as if they were just seamless. And this is the unconventional method that is happening to Jacob. His weakness is being exposed. The thing that is deepest in his heart that God needs to uproot is being pulled out. His right hand is getting tied behind his back and he looks like a fool. But it's for his good. It's so that God's promise could redeem Jacob more fully. And what I wanna say is that down the road, it's the same for you. God wants to achieve in you more than you could ever imagine and ever dream of for your good. And he will use an unconventional method to do it. Something that doesn't make sense to you to uproot and to dig out those things that are deepest in our hearts. 
Jacob was being redeemed by the God whose promise was wedded to him. God's promise was wedded to him. And if you read on through the Jacob story, which we'll come to, Jacob one day becomes Israel. He becomes Israel. And he goes back to his land, a totally different man. But as you see here, Hebrews chapter 12 also continues to reign in mind. If God is disciplining those with whom he loves, we must consider this as well. Consider him, Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. Not because he's mean, not because he's a vengeful God. It's because he's a good and loving father and his promises is wedded to his people and he knows what you are to become. Think about this. He's saying to us that Jesus went to the point of shedding his own blood. You and I have not. It's because Jesus went all the way that we can safely and surely be changed day by day by the unconventional methods through God's grace to being who we were created to be. God does work together everything for the good of those who love him. But there is no one who loves him except one. There is no one who loves him except one. The son who came from the line of Jacob, Jesus. Jesus too was subject to what scholars call moral reciprocity, which is what's happening here to Jacob. But instead of reaping the righteousness that Jesus deserved, he reaped the sin of you and me. Why? Because God cannot be mocked. Sin cannot go unpunished. God so loved the world that he gave. He gave his only son, His son reaped the sin and the wrath of God for you so that you might reap the grace and the mercy of God through him, through him. In Jesus, our sinful nature is being uprooted in unconventional methods that only God can really understand. With Job, we can say, who am I to question the creator of the world and his methods and his ways Who are we? But I can trust his provision. God says, where were you the days that I measured? Where were you when I sunk the deep and spread the skies open? Where were you? He is God. He is good. And he has our redemption and restoration in mind. And honestly, friends, it hurts in the weight room, again, thinking of a sports analogy, it always said pain was weakness leaving the body. I think in some ways that's true. God's good and kind grace to us and his unconventional methods is, comes through pain. And sometimes that uproots the weakness, the sin that is there that God wants to get out of us. 
if we consider that the God who led Jacob to the well is the same God who is providing for Jacob in the midst of unconventional circumstances, then we can trust him today. We can trust him today, tomorrow, and for the rest of our lives. Why? Because Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus is the one who loves God. And if you are in him, you then therefore love God because he first loved him on our behalf. And as the story of Jacob goes on, we see discipline. The discipline of God softened Jacob so much that in Genesis 48, Jacob says, God has been my shepherd all my life. You can't see the end. God can see the end. But when you come to the end of your days, friend, and you take that last breath, I pray that by the grace of God, that you too would be able to say, God has been my shepherd all my life. So God's leading, God's methods, but then we have to get to the marriage. We have to get to the reality of beholding Jesus as the better bridegroom. So marriage is a key to the storyline of the Bible, and it runs from Genesis to Revelation. Marriage, you'd think, was made for man and woman, but Marriage between a man and a woman is actually just a sign. It's a sign of something greater. It's a sign of God and his people. Not just for you and your spouse, but it's a sign of God's commitment to his people. The reality that you and I were meant to be wedded to God. We were meant to be wedded to him. And God's promises are wedded to us as his people. Abraham, Isaac, and now Jacob. Jacob married both Leah and Rachel. And though Leah and through Leah, it seems as though Jacob didn't care. He wanted Rachel more. If you think and you read through it and you observe the story of Jacob, what comes through Leah? We get Levi and Judah and through Levi came Moses, the one who is writing this narrative to us. And through Judah, who do we get? We get the Lord Jesus. This is a God who orchestrates history based not on Jacob, based not on you, but on his promises, despite Jacob, despite you. In this story, we have a marriage and we have a bridegroom and in a very, very, very messy bridal situation. A bridegroom, if you think about the way Jacob handles this, he's lacking. He doesn't desire Leah. He loved Rachel. That's who he wanted. He doesn't desire her. But this man, Jacob, is not our bridegroom. This man, Jacob, is just a type of the bridegroom. Jane Austen in Pride or Prejudice begins like this. And John and I were just talking about this and I was so captivated by this line. It says this, it is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. A single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. Jacob has no fortune, but he's in want of a wife. What we could do 
to this line by Jane Austen, and thank you, Jane, for writing that beautiful line, is this. A single man in possession of God's promises must be in want of a wife. A single man in possession of God's promises must be in want of a wife. And this is why I say that. And this is why it's important. And this is how it connects to Jesus. Is that Jesus is the true and better Jacob. And all of God's promises are yes and amen in Jesus. And Jesus came to this world for a bride. In John chapter three, verse 29, John speaks of waiting for the bridegroom and he speaks of Jesus coming. And then in John chapter four, we get, a, we get a very, very familiar scene. And for many of us who grew up with this story in mind, it's the scene of a woman at the well. And what do we have? We have the bridegroom at the well and we have an interaction with a woman. Jesus meets a woman from Samaria at a well. There's an offer of water, not to marry her per se, but the text tells us that it was Jacob's well. It was Jacob's well. Jesus tells her he can give her water so that she will never thirst again. Jesus even, sh- even knows how society saw her undesirable, unwanted, and her husband even at the same time, undesirable, unwanted, on her fifth husband, as we know. Jesus points out. And she asked Jesus, are you greater than our father Jacob? Oh, only if she knew who she was talking to. Only if you knew who your savior was and who you were talking to. Are you greater than our father Jacob? Jacob spoke of someone greater to come. In Genesis 49.10, he says this, to Judah. He says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him and to him shall be the obedience of his people. And what this woman at the well was, and who this woman at the well was standing before was the lion of the tribe of Judah. The bridegroom come for her, for the world, so that they may thirst and no longer be unsatisfied by the things of this world. And this is Jesus, Leah, the woman at the well, and all of us have something deeply, deeply in common. We are longing for a bridegroom. We are longing for a bridegroom. One who can satisfy our deepest longings. As we will see in the Jacob story, Leah had to watch Jacob love Rachel and long to be loved. You know what that feels like, right? To want to be loved, to want to be drawn in, to want to be needed, to want to be pursued. Rachel was loved, Leah was not. And as we see in the woman at the well, Jesus tells her that her longing cannot be satisfied in her husband. And that's for all of us. Our longings cannot be satisfied in anything in this world but Jesus. 
God knew that no mere man could carry his promises perfectly. It's obvious here that Jacob, even though God's promises are wedded to him, he does not carry them perfectly. That no mere man could quench the deepest longings of your hearts, of my hearts, of Leah's hearts, of Rachel's hearts, of Jacob's heart, of Laban's heart. No mere man could quench those. God created humanity to be his bride, his special possession, and he became a man to pursue his bride. Jacob served seven years times two as a generous bride price. Jesus came with a bride price in mind. He served to the point of giving his life as a sacrifice for his bride. What can be more generous than what Jesus did for his bride? If we thought Jacob's was generous, Jesus is far more. So it is in Jesus that all the promises of God are yes and amen. And if we are wedded to Jesus, we are wedded to the very promises of God. And in knowing Jesus, we find the relationship we are made for, the one that satisfies us now and forever. And at the well, the Samaritan woman met the savior of the world. And after she met this Jesus, she ran back and told so many people. And at the end of the narrative, it reads, surely I have met the savior of the world. This man is he. The true and better bridegroom is Jesus. Jacob points us to Jesus the one whom we all need, the one whom we all long for. Are you wedded to Jesus? Friends, God's promise is wedded to his people despite their past, present, and future promises. And we can trust his provision. His provision for us, no matter what state we find ourselves in, if we are in Jesus. And this moment right now could be God leading you into an unexpected place, surrounded by unexpected people, using unconventional methods. And right now, Jesus is leading you to himself, to the bridegroom. And we can then sing, if Jesus is our bridegroom, that old hymn, this is standing on the promises of Christ the Lord, bound to him eternally by love's strong cord, overcoming daily with the Spirit's sword, standing on the promises of God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your promise that is wedded to us despite our circumstances, despite our sin, despite our lack of desire for you. I pray that we would trust your provision in the way in which you are leading us and making us into who you have desired for us to be. Would we look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith now as we prepare our hearts for communion? Amen. Take a moment and prepare yourselves for communion.